Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Thanks to you at home for joining us this hour. We are going to start this Friday evening with a little trivia. I read a quote and you guess who said it. President Donald Trump is a, quote, demonic force, a destroyer, but he's not going to destroy us. I'll give you a hint here. It's not a quote from a pastor. It's from Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Last night, the Dominion Voting Machine Company filed a public version of their brief in their defamation lawsuit against Fox News. And that brief included dozens of incredible behind-the-scenes quotes about how Fox News head honchos really actually feel. And in a lot of ways, the story that Dominion lays out is the story of the fear of Tucker Carlson and his colleagues. Dominion alleges that Fox News changed its coverage of Dominion's voting machines and the 2020 election out of fear that if Fox didn't stay loyal to Donald Trump and his followers, the network would lose its audience and with it a whole lot of money. On November 7th, Fox News' decision desk called the 2020 election for Joe Biden. Dominion revealed a text sent from Tucker Carlson to one of his producers that day after Fox called the election, and it said, Do the executives understand how much credibility and trust we've lost with our audience? We're playing with fire for real. And an alternate, an alternative like the ultra conservative channel Newsmax could be devastating to us. Three days later, the president of Fox News, a man named Jay Wallace, texted Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott. The Newsmax surge is a bit troubling, truly is an alternate universe when you watch, but it can't be ignored. Fox News CEO replied, yes. To which Fox News president responded, trying to get everyone to comprehend we are on a war footing. On November 12, 2020, Fox News host Sean Hannity and his guests went big on the idea that something was amiss with the 2020 election. It is now nine days after Election Day. And today, more reports of dead people voting from beyond the grave. Amazing system we set up. Several days ago, Dominion came under heavy fire after allegations that their machines caused thousands of votes in one Michigan county to be switched from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Here's one thing I know, Sean. Those Dominion software systems, they changed more votes than Vladimir Putin ever did. That night, President Trump tweeted that Fox News host Sean Hannity's show was a must-see because of his takedown of the horrible, inaccurate, and anything-but-secure Dominion voting system, which is used in states where tens of thousands of votes were stolen from us and given to Biden. A newer Fox News correspondent, a woman named Jackie Heinrich, decided to fact-check Trump's tweet, pointing out that top election infrastructure officials have said that there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised, which is exactly how reporters should have responded to the claims that Trump was making. But later that night, in a group text that apparently exists with Fox News hosts Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, and Sean Hannity, Carlson texted Hannity, please get her fired. Seriously, what the F? He did not use the letter F, by the way. It needs to stop immediately. Like tonight, it's measurably hurting the company. The stock price is down. Not a joke. By the next morning, Heinrich had deleted that fact check. 
The entire filing by Dominion is bonkers. And yes, that's a technical term. It reads like a novel. There are direct quotes from senior figures in the Fox News universe admitting privately that they knew the election was not stolen, despite the paranoid conspiracies exploring the very opposite idea, the conspiracies that were all over the Fox airwaves. You should really read the whole thing. Well, we can tweet a link to it. But the one you really need to see is this. On January 5th, 2021, Rupert Murdoch, the owner of the media empire that Fox News is part of, he emailed Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott. It's been suggested our primetime three, meaning Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, should independently or together say something like the election is over and Joe Biden won. Murdoch continued that such a statement would go a long way to stop the myth that the election was stolen. Fox's CEO then forwarded that email to the executive president of primetime programming at Fox saying, I told Rupert that privately they're all there. We need to be careful about using the shows and pissing off the viewers, but they know how to navigate. Which is all. Wow. If you widen the aperture a bit and if you look at the big picture here, the core of what Dominion is alleging is that Fox felt forced to push lies about the election so they wouldn't lose their Trump-supporting audience. They were terrified of losing them. They were just desperate to stay in their good graces. And so they lied. Again and again. Loyalty at all costs. And that phenomenon, the Trump loyalty test, that goes beyond conservative media. We are seeing it play out right now inside the Republican Party. Just last month, Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel faced an insurgent challenge from candidates who were seen as more sufficiently hardcore in their conservative worldviews. She ended up winning the position again as the head of the RNC, but a third of the RNC's members voted against her. Now, McDaniel is clearly worried about the same thing happening in the Republican primary, the splintering of a party that is only very loosely held together and mostly by President Trump. Today, The Washington Post reported that next Wednesday, an internal RNC committee is scheduled to meet to lay down its rules for the 2024 presidential Republican primary debates. And they intend to require candidates to sign a pledge stating that they will support whoever the eventual nominee is or the RNC won't let them debate. Like Tucker Carlson or Fox News executives, it seems the RNC is worried that if they lose Trump, the Republican Party could get its Newsmax, a third party. And that might mean the whole thing could fall apart. Joining us now is Michael Scherer, national political reporter who covers campaigns for The Washington Post and is the lead reporter on this piece tonight. Michael, it's good to see you, my friend. It's been a while. Thanks for joining me tonight. It's been a while. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. What is the likelihood that Ronna McDaniel can get this done? I think it's a certainty right now that she will pass, that this rule will pass next week, that there will be a requirement to get on the debate stage. Now, if the question is, can she keep the party to hold together even after there's a nominee next year? I'm not sure how much power she actually has. I mean, what she's doing now is basically beginning an education process where she's going to be saying over and over again to Republican voters uh, across the country that you will lose the next general election if you don't find a way to stick together. And we have to convince the candidates as well to find a way to stick together. The problem she has obviously, is that a number of the candidates right now or the potential candidates are not saying they will commit 
and and so there's going to be a standoff for a little bit to figure out you know whether someone like Donald Trump, who just said a few weeks ago that he's not ready to commit to support the nominee, uh, whether he wants to get on that debate stage. I mean, this, they tried this in 2015, right? Ryan Priebus wanted all the Republicans yeah. to sign another loyalty pledge. Trump signed it, and then I think it was six months later at a town hall, basically backed off the pledge entirely. So, I mean, are they not <laughs> once burned, twice shy? <laughs> what is to prevent Trump from doing exactly the same thing again? And, and is he not the person they are most concerned about? I think there could be a split from either end of the party. So obviously, Trump is a concern. There was a Monmouth poll this month that found uh, about 33 percent of Republican voters uh, wanted Trump to be the nominee and 27 percent of Republican voters. So almost all of those said if Trump did not win the nomination, he should run in a third party bid. So there's enormous danger there. There's also a danger on the other side. You have a number of candidates like uh, Larry Hogan, Asa Hutchinson, maybe Chris Sununu, who are, are are staking out positions that say we really don't want, I don't support Trump as the next nominee. It wouldn't be good for the party. It will hurt us in the general election. They haven't always gone quite as far as saying they won't support him in a general election, uh, but they're right there up up to the line. So, so that danger is very real. Now, what happened in 2015 is, you know, Ryan's previous had all the candidates sign this pledge to support the nominee. And and the leverage he had there was he assumed candidates wouldn't want to lie. They wouldn't want to sign a piece of paper and then go back on their word. And if they did, they'd be punished by voters. It turned out that wasn't the case. Uh, you know, uh, President Trump, uh, then candidate Trump, signed the pledge. Uh, months later, went back on his word. John Kasich went back on his word. Ted Cruz suggested he was a little uh, uh, wishy-washy about it, but suggested he wasn't sure he was going to support Trump as the nominee. Uh, and it, it ultimately didn't matter. Trump won that election. So the leverage that Ronna McDaniel has here is somewhat limited. Um, I think what this does, though, what she can do is control the conversation at this point. And, and this will come up in, in the debates. Um, it'll, be a, it'll, be a, it'll be a talking point in the campaigns. And, and I think her hope is that over time, Republican voters begin to internalize this message that they really do need to find a way to like all parts of their party or they're just going to lose to the Democrats. I'm, I mean, pardon me for, for minimizing the importance of Larry Hogan to the Republican Party, but yeah. it is kind of charming that it's even a concern what Chris Sununu and Larry Hogan want to do, whether or not they want to endorse Former sure. President Trump, right? I mean, it feels like the existential danger to the party here is Donald Trump, because if you look at the polling, I think it's like the polling among Republican voters. Should Trump run as an independent in 2024 if he doesn't win the GOP nomination? 27 percent of the party says yes. I mean, that would effectively end the Republican Party's prospects as a national governing coalition, wouldn't it? It absolutely would. But if, if you have a general election like we've had the last few cycles where the where the where the you know, percentage difference between Democrats and Republicans comes down to two or three points, it can also matter if you lose some of those you know, Republican voters who we just saw in the last midterms. Uh, you know, a lot of Republicans stayed home or didn't vote for someone like Blake Masters or Kerry Lake because they thought they were a little too far out there. And those are the people who otherwise want to vote for Republican and may listen to someone like Chris Sununu, may listen to uh, 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 someone like Larry Hogan. But you're absolutely right. The danger in terms of numbers is far greater on the on the Trump side. And Trump has used this threat of, of possibly breaking with the party and going independent a number of times. He used it after January 6th. It was part of his negotiating strategy to get Kevin McCarthy to come down to Mar-a-Lago and meet with him when for those few weeks there, a lot of the party was shunning 
was shunning him. Um, and, and, he, and he used it effectively as leverage then. He used it effectively as leverage in 2015. And I fully expect he'll do it again uh, in I, this coming election. The Trump threat, as we see, cuts across all spectrums of American society and all forms of media, governance and the like. Michael Scherer, thank you for your time tonight and great reporting. It's good to see you. Yeah, thank you, Alex. Joining us now is Jeremy Peters, who is covering Dominion Voting Machines lawsuit against Fox News for The New York Times. Jeremy, thank you for being with me tonight as we unpack what is I mean, and there's been quite a bit of coverage of this uh, this brief and the contents therein. But it every time I read a new quote, even the ones I've heard before, it is explosive what we have learned here. Um, can you touch me a little bit about the defense that Fox News is mounting in the face of all this information? Well, Fox will try to say that this is all protected speech under the First Amendment. But, Alex, as you've seen in everything that we've heard dribble out over the last few days, this is anything but standard journalism. And what Dominion is arguing is that, in fact, it is proof that Fox knew that what they were putting on the air was false and they did it anyway for the sake of of profitability and ratings. And if you look at actually what was said on the air in those days, and you look at what was happening to Fox's ratings, that's actually very provable and very easy a case to present to a jury. You have Fox at one point telling the truth, getting out ahead of the rest of the news organizations in the country saying, Biden is going to win. Then Fox's audience revolted saying, you know, no, Donald Trump actually won this. And you have these extraordinary email and, ex- and text exchanges from behind the scenes uh, among Fox executives and hosts saying, whoa, our readership, our, our, our viewership is revolting. They are, they're leaving us. They're going to Newsmax. They are destroying our brand. Uh, the CEO of Fox News herself says, We are going to reset. This is a new day from day one. And from then on, it is a cascade of these fraudulent false claims of fraud that Dominion machines are somehow at the center of this non-existent conspiracy to steal the election from Donald Trump. And from the legal excerpts that I've spoken to, they say that they have rarely seen a case that is this easy to prove, that has this substantial uh, a log of evidence that proves that what the defendant knew at the time shows that they were lying. Jeremy, I'll read Fox's statement in the wake of all of this. There will be lots of noise and confusion generated by Dominion and their opportunistic private equity owners. But the core of this case remains about freedom of the press and freedom of speech, which are fundamental rights afforded by the Constitution and protected by New York Times v. Sullivan. It seems to me that this wasn't about freedom of the press and freedom of speech. This was about giving a platform to a group of conspiracy theorists who literally said they're receiving some of this information from the wind, right? This was not news. This was this was um, language that was intended to stoke the interest and the rage and, uh, of the Trump base. I wonder if you agree with our thesis that, I mean, Fox's problems are inherently the GOP's problems, which is they are all just paralyzed by this existential fear that Trump and his supporters will ditch their their support for either the party or the outlet. 
Fox is afraid of its audience, just like Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party are afraid of their voters. They don't fully understand these people and they feel the need to give them what they think that they want. And occasionally they've misjudged that. Um, and Trump has misjudged himself from time to time. But ultimately, he has a much better finger on the pulse of the voters than any establishment Republican figure or any producer at Fox News does. And this is why they reacted with such an about face after giving the audience what was initially good journalism. Right. Fox was the first report that, you know, let's not lose that as a fact of what happened here. Like Fox was the first report and they were correct. And, you know, a lot of mainstream publications pilloried them and said, no, they, they got out way too ahead of the of the curve here. Um, Arizona is too early to call. Well, they were right. And and then Fox backed away from that. They there once they saw the backlash from their audience, they said, you know, you know what? Um, we are going to actually tell our audience something that we know not to be true. Tucker Carlson knew this not to be true. Laura Ingram knew this not to be true. Sean Hannity, as as he told Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox News, knew that Joe Biden had been legitimately elected. The president, and to your point about that, you know, the the wind. I don't think that should go uh, uh, lost on your audience. The evidence that Sidney Powell had that she presented to Fox News producers and hosts was an email from a woman who was delusional, who said she could hear the wind speaking to her and that she had been killed in a prior life. They had this in their hands and they put Sidney Powell on the air anyway as a woman who was the voice of the Trump administration saying this is why she believed the election had been stolen through Dominion machines. That's all in this case. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Let's not forget, there's a lot that we don't know, Alex. Yeah. There's a lot in this complaint that has been redacted that we still cannot see. If you were to look at it, there are paragraphs and pages that are blacked out that we will eventually see what's behind those. And from what I'm told, what's there is even more explosive than what we've already seen. Just to make, for people who haven't read the brief yet, Powell's source explained she gets her information from experiencing something like time travel in a semi-conscious state, allowing her to see what others don't see and hear what others don't hear, and she received messages from the wind. That is the source that Sidney Powell went on Fox News and gave credence to, as she said there was fraud in the 2020 election. That's what we're talking about here. Jeremy Peters, thank you for your time in reporting. Thanks for it. Thank you. We have lots more to get to tonight, like this guy, Rudy Giuliani, as you have not seen him in decades before he risked his legacy, his livelihood, and who knows, maybe even more for Donald Trump's quest to hold on to power. Plus, when a train full of toxic chemicals derailed in eastern Ohio, it not only put residents at risk, it also revealed the cruelty that is part of the Republican platform. We'll have more on that just ahead. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. 
water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. This is how it looked on February 3rd in East Palestine, Ohio, when the 1.7 mile long, 151 car, 18,000 ton Norfolk Southern freight train derailed. Smoke plumes, trains stacked side by side, all on fire. At least 11 of the cars that derailed carried the carcinogen vinyl chloride, along with other chemicals used to make adhesives, plastics, and construction materials, all right in the middle of a town of nearly 5,000 people that borders Pennsylvania. On February 6th, emergency crews came to the scene of the derailment to try to get rid of those substances with a controlled release and burn. But if someone breathes in high levels of something like vinyl chloride, they might experience headaches, dizziness, and increased risk of developing certain types of cancer. To avoid those health risks, residents were evacuated from their homes while those chemicals burned. But even while they were away, East Palestine residents and reporters say they could see a mushroom cloud of smoke, one that released a strong, dizzying odor. By February 8th, authorities found the air quality in the area safe enough for residents to return. So they did. And this is what they observed next. It doesn't smell safe. I'm taking my things and I'm out of here. Everyone else around here can call their own shots. Don't tell me it's safe. Something's going on if the fish are floating in the creek. I feel about 80% safe. I have heard that they have got two dogs that actually drank out of there and died. Yeah, I have headaches. I mean, I, and then the other night when I was coming home from work, I was coming down through Candleton. I could smell it clear down there. Health-wise, cancer. I mean, is this going to be a big cancer cluster? Our... In five to ten years, why walk my daughter down the aisle? Will I see her get married? What's going to happen? Residents who have returned to the evacuation zone have reported headaches and rashes, respiratory issues, and coughing. They've expressed their concern about whether the chemicals are now in the soil and drinking wells. When Governor Mike DeWine was asked in a press conference this week whether he would return to the crash site if he lived there, this was his answer. I think that I would be drinking the bottled water um, and I would be continuing to uh, um, find out what the tests were showing as far as the air. Um, I would be alert and, and concerned, but uh, I think I would probably be back in my house. That is actually the resounding advice from state officials, by the way. Just buy some bottled water when you get back home. But residents of East Palestine say many of them are on welfare. They rely on programs like SNAP, commonly known as food stamps, to get the food and the bottled water that they need. And in an emergency like this, those are exactly the sorts of programs you might expect to fall back on. The social safety net is meant to help low-income communities, particularly when they are facing heightened health risks and food scarcity. And that is why it is so surprising that as this crisis unfolds, Republicans in Washington are seriously suggesting slashing those very same programs so they can decrease the federal debt limit. House Republicans are considering adding stricter work requirements to the National Food Stamps Program and reducing aid to low-income adults without children. 
That is all in addition to the impending reduction of monthly SNAP allotments by $82 on average, which starts next month. Republicans like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio are incensed by what is happening in East Palestine, Ohio right now. And at the same time, they are sharpening their knives for a program that would help people buy bottled water in an emergency just like this one. Joining us now is Congressman Ro Khanna, the Democrat from California who sits on the House Agriculture and Oversight and Reform Committees. Congressman Khanna, thank you for being here tonight. I just oh, I'd thank love you. Thank you for covering me. Well, this is really important because I think we often don't see the connection between, you know, urging residents to buy bottled water, you know, in a, in a moment of, of real vulnerability and, and then also cutting programs like food stamps, which are meant to help the most vulnerable among us. I mean, can Democrats make this argument? Because it seems like Republicans are trying to get some sort of mileage out of this political mileage, if you will, out of this train crash in terms of their attacks on the Democratic governor of the state. Alex, what's sad is that this has turned into a political football. I mean, what's happening to the people in East Palestine is horrific. It's one of the largest environmental disasters. These are working class folks, almost 70 percent in poverty, as you pointed out. Many face deindustrialization, jobs going offshore. And what we have to do as a country is come together to support the programs you mentioned so that people have assistance, to support making sure that these rail uh, roads are safe, that we are holding of corporate railroads accountable with safe laws and uh, emergency breaks. Uh, and we, instead of throwing uh, punches at each other in a partisan way, I mean, let's focus on, on the people there who are suffering. It seems like the Republican Party, setting the train saga aside, understands that it has a problem when it comes to their stance on social safety net problems. I mean, writ large, there is a debate about how public the GOP can be with their intention to slash social safety net programs. You have Donald Trump out there saying it's, you know, Rick Scott should not be talking about the slashing of Social Security and Medicare. We're not going to talk about the sunsetting of entitlement programs. It's a bad idea. Let's not do that. Bad news. News for Rick Scott of Florida. There will be no cuts. I mean, Trump seems to understand the reality of this. He knows the people of East Palestine. They voted for him. I think 71 percent of the residents there voted for Trump. And yet, you know, there's a parallel universe in which the party, especially in Washington, continues forward trying to do the very thing that they say they're not trying to do. Do you think that that hypocrisy comes home to roost as they try and slash SNAP ahead of the passage of the farm bill? I do. Look, Alex, there's a reason Donald Trump won the presidency and Mitt Romney did it. Uh, what Donald Trump tried to do is he realized that uh, the Republicans needed to win the working class. Well, you can't be a working class party when you're for cutting the very benefits to the working class. And now there are people in the Congress who are saying slash Social Security, slash Medicare, Flash the programs that would help people in East Palestine. And I think you've got Donald Trump looking at this, saying they're committing political suicide. Uh, a lot of the policies that he rejected, a Paul Ryan, a Mitt Romney, to try to fashion a, a more working class constituency are ones that uh, the extreme wing uh, in the House and Senate aren't in agreement with. And that, I think, would be a political disaster for them in these battleground states. I have to ask you, um, Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert co-authored uh, a letter about 
again, food stamp snap. And I want to read you a selection from it. As the United States approaches the brink of untenable debt levels, I write to urge you to work with the U.S. Congress to enact work requirements as a feature of welfare reform. These incentives will prevent the condemnation of SNAP beneficiaries to a life of dependency. Instead, incentives will restore their dignity. Work requirements for able-bodied adults promote community engagement and a transition to self-sufficiency. Breaking this poverty trap will help future generations avoid welfare programs to altogether. I mean, th- this is the age-old dignity argument about getting people off the social safety net. Um, that Republicans, you know, I'm old enough to remember when this is Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan's, like, primary argument for governing. Do you, are you surprised to see the Gateses and Boberts of the party embracing this? And what do you think that portends for, you know, future legislative sessions where they've shown to have so much power in Kevin McCarthy's caucus? They do have power, and it's a substantive mistake. It's a political mistake. Alex, it's important to realize they are work requirements in a lot of the SNAP benefits. That was, like it or not, Bill Clinton's reforms to a lot of the welfare in the 1990s. Now, some of the liberals opposed them, but those work requirements are there. And this idea that you have people just getting SNAP benefits without having to do job training programs, without having to uh, actually seek employment, is just not true. Uh, This is a myth from Ronald Reagan's welfare queens that plays on the worst racial stereotypes, and it's factually false. And I don't think it's winning politics. The big divide in this country is, are you a party for the working class? Do you understand that many Americans can't afford to live in America? They can't afford childcare. They can't afford health care. They can't afford education. And are you going to help them or are you going to be just for the elite? And, And the party that's for the working class, I think, is the party that will win. I think it's also worth mentioning, you know, as there is a talk of the bloated nature of these programs and how they're rife with fraud, the USDA found a fraud rate in SNAP of less than 1% annually. It serves 40 million Americans. The integrity of this program should not be questioned, and the utility of it should not be questioned either. Congressman Ro Khanna, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, We have still more to come tonight, including a proposal to let teens as young as 14 work in places that have, for the last hundred years or so, been considered way too dangerous. Plus, how did Rudy Giuliani go from this guy on the left side of your street, screen, (laughs) or the street, to this guy on the right side of your screen? We are going to talk to someone who's been on his case since day one. That's coming up. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.
I want to show you a headline. Federal officials say more than 100 children worked in dangerous jobs for slaughterhouse cleaning firm. Now, that is not a headline that was from a 100-year-old newspaper. This is from today, which maybe you guessed because, yes, it has the Peacock logo and it looks like it's on the Internet. But regardless, the Labor Department today announced that one of the largest food sanitation companies in the country paid $1.5 million in fines for violating child labor laws saying they use more than 100 children, some as young as 13, to work hazardous and high-risk cleaning jobs in overnight shifts in meatpacking plants across eight states in the South and Midwest. The children used caustic chemicals to clean razor-sharp saws, including a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old who sustained chemical burns on the job. According to investigators, the 14-year-old worked the overnight shift, then went to school and fell asleep in classes or missed school entirely. The company says it has a zero-tolerance policy against employing anyone under the age of 18 and that it is fully committed to working with the Department of Labor to make additional improvements to enforce that policy. Regardless, now is probably not a good time for a new bill in Iowa, which was introduced by a Republican state lawmaker just a few weeks ago, to address worker shortages. The bill would reportedly expand working hours for teenagers during the school year and allow children as young as 14 to work in certain jobs in meat packing plants, like industrial freezers and meat coolers, so long as they are separated from where the meat is prepared. Lawmakers who support this bill say the teens would be participating in a job training program. But opponents are hearkening back to the early 1900s, before federal regulations prohibited children from working hazardous jobs. And they're saying there's a reason our society said that it is not appropriate for children to work in those conditions. And then there is this. The proposed bill would protect businesses from liability if a child worker is sickened or hurt or killed on the job. We will be right back. It was a historic day for New York and a triumphant moment for the biggest black population of any American city. Ours is a new coalition of conscience and purpose, one that has room for everyone and excludes no one. But Giuliani, who mounted a sometimes bitterly personal campaign, called for unification. In the highest tradition of our democracy, we will work together with all our might to build a great city here in New York. I give Rudy a lot of praise that he came out and started talking about, you know, we have a new mayor and we need to get behind him and support him. I've just spoken to mayor-elect David Dinkins. No, 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 no. And people started shouting, no, 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 and it was a fraud and all the stuff you hear today about Trump. And Rudy told them to quiet down. He'll be the first. Listen. He is the first African-American to hold the office of mayor of the city of New York. And that is a historic achievement for which we all applaud. That was a scene from MSNBC and Time Studio's new four-part documentary series, When Truth Isn't Truth, the Rudy Giuliani story, which premieres this Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Rudy Giuliani had just lost his first bid for the mayor of New York City to David Dinkins, the city's first black mayor. And when his supporters erupted in claims of fraud and calls for a recount, Giuliani admonished them as he accepted the legitimate results of that election. 
it is a remarkable contrast with the Rudy Giuliani we know today, the man who would go on to be one of the chief instigators in Trump's claims of a stolen election, the man who held press conference after press conference undermining the election results, sometimes standing in front of a landscaping business, sometimes fresh from the beauty salon. The man who had his law license revoked in the state of New York, who is facing another potential disbarment in Washington, D.C. The man who could be one of the witnesses facing potential perjury charges as part of the Georgia investigation into Trump's scheme to overturn the election in that state. And the man who has been subpoenaed to testify by the special counsel overseeing the federal investigation into Trump's election scheme. MSNBC's new four-part doc series chronicles Giuliani's journey from celebrated prosecutor to America's mayor to Trump lackey. The series shows how Giuliani evolved over time on issues like election integrity, but it also explores parts of Giuliani's personality that haven't changed all that much, like his time as an aggressive prosecutor targeting black and brown New Yorkers, which put him squarely in league with the young Donald Trump. To get the full picture of how Giuliani became the scandal-plagued figure he is today, the filmmaker spoke with former aides to Giuliani and politicians, members of his own family, and reporters, including the man who joins us now. Kurt Anderson is the co-founder of The Great Spy magazine and the author of Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History, and Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire. And you know how Giuliani went haywire, presumably, oh, Kurt. I witnessed it. I'm not sure I can tell you how. Yeah. But I mean, I think what's so interesting about documentaries like this is you see where he ends up, right? Mm. And we're so eager to know, was it always within him, right? And as sort of one of our most important chroniclers of New York City, uh, in, as, as co-founder of Spy, you guys back in the day, I mean, you, you were covering Giuliani even before he was mayor. There was this amazing headline. I think we have a clip of it. There's <laughs> a profile of Giuliani called the toughest weenie in America. Can we show her? I, literally, I mean, the headline really mm. says it all. When you recall Giuliani from that era, mm. what what stands out to you as, as you revisit his early career? Well, that was when he had been U.S. attorney yeah. in, the, in, in New York City for six or seven years. That's how we covered him as this politically ambitious U.S. attorney, who, in addition to prosecuting black and brown people, as, as your introduction said, also famously created his kind of Elliot Ness, Thomas Dewey, incorruptible Mr. Clean reputation by prosecuting Wall Street malefactors and marching them out yeah. for the press Perp like perps. Yes, exactly. So which made him, which was brilliant, you know, political theater that he did. And and that was his reputation. And, and, and you know, he was a tough prosecutor, and then he became a tough mayor, and under him, I mean, he didn't, he's not responsible for it exactly, but he didn't stop it. Under him, as mayor, crime went from this historic peak, immediately started dropping for lots of reasons, as it did all over the United States, a lot more here. So, there he was, as as this, this, this untouchable law enforcement character at the, and, and, you know, lots of people loved him and voted for him, and he was, he was a lot of things, and we wrote pieces about saying why he's a bluster and he's a mm-hmm. he's 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 a he's a lackey at that point of Al D'Amato, the the Republican senator from yeah. New York. But he was what he was. So to see what he's become, it's it's like the bizarro world opposite land version yeah. of disbarred. Well, disbarred and 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 just discredited. This pathetic guy. You know, he'd gone from being a a, a convicted robber's son. That's what his the family he came out of, to being this Mr. Clean character, and 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 
you know, being the, the altar boy opposite of his dad. And then, you know, sooner or later, starting in this century and, and meeting Donald Trump, he falls into a, a beyond disrepute of what he was trying to escape. I mean, there's the famous Michael Corleone. They always drag you back in and he dragged himself back, back in. in. You, know? you know, one thing that struck me from rereading that old article is how, you know, um, enamored he was of this idea, as you point out, of this kind of 1960s era law and order figure. Right. But what seemed most attractive to him, or at least if I'm reading between the lines in the piece, was how it was the opposite of sort of 1960s counterculture, that it mm. was this very, you know, um, conservative way of living. There was a clear right and wrong. There was no self-reflection. Uh, there was none of the sort of anti-government questioning that existed on the left, that it was very clear. And in that way, that kind of thinking found a very easy home with Donald Trump and his kind of like strongman persona that he developed in the 2016 race. Did you I mean, do you think that culturally that was as attractive to Giuliani as anything else? Of, of course it was. But but you also mentioned that he was this this almost puritanical character, mm -hmm. you know, to becoming this boozy, you know, Mar-a-Lago hanger on guy who, uh, you know, so so. Uh, but no, I think I think that what he was playing, as was Richard Nixon before him in the 60s and 70s, was playing to this white working class, mm -hmm. you know, uh, large number of people in America as voters, Giuliani in New York, as Nixon was in the United States. And that, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, is, of course, what propelled Trump to the presidency. But no, his thing with what he became in the 20, 21st century is this guy just looking to make a buck any way he yeah. can, really. And, and to, to go to have expensive scotches and, and go to the cigar bar and have pretty babes on his arm. You yeah. know, I mean, that's what he became. And it's, it's you know, it's, 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 like, it's like a bad fictional Yes, it's, it is the stuff of, it's a tragedy of fiction. Yes. I mean, to that end, the shamelessness, the self-effacing nature of his, like, current role, you know, the hair dye running down his face, not getting paid by Trump, basically a two-bit con man, um, speaks to his inherent character, the, the weakness of his character. And the, and the spy piece, even in 1988, recognizes that Giuliani is so in need of a patron, of a father figure to appoint him. He never really ends, I mean, aside from his mayorship, he, he doesn't really run for higher office because he he needs to be appointed. And he's so much that person in the shadow of Donald Trump. Well, and what you saw in that piece in Spy in 1989, I think, which was, again, about his, his, his life as U.S. attorney about to try to become maybe senator if he could or mayor or something. Um, and, and, and what you see is, is he was a political character all along. It wasn't as though he was above politics. He used politics. He helped his political allies uh, along with his 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 campaign manager in his first failed race for mayor, Roger Ailes, yeah. by the way. <laughs> um, uh, but so he was always playing that angle, even though he was he was portraying himself as this incorruptible Mr. Clean. So that angle playing became the whole thing, in, you know, within, you know, 20 years. There's. A term for that, and I believe it is called a hollow man. And now the hollow man is in a great deal of legal jeopardy. Kurt Anderson, co-founder of The Great Spy magazine, The Great Kurt Anderson. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you. It's great to Pleasure. see you. When the truth isn't the truth, the Rudy Giuliani story premieres this Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern.
They say that states are the laboratories of democracy. But what we are seeing in Republican-held states is increasingly that states are becoming labs for autocracy. There are the book bans and the censorship of certain terms and ideas, the voter suppression laws, the reversal of freedoms around bodily autonomy. And there is what is happening at the state level when it comes to COVID-19. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis, for example, recently got the state Supreme Court to convene a grand jury to investigate crimes and wrongdoing committed against Floridians related to the COVID-19 vaccine, which appears to be an attempt to appease anti-vaxxers in the state by floating the idea that the vaccines are very, very dangerous, despite the fact that this is simply not true. And now this week, there are Republican lawmakers in Idaho who are proposing an outright ban on all mRNA vaccines. And under their new bill, any person who administers one of these vaccines would be charged with a crime. It is not law yet, and it has a long way to go, but the proposal is basically an attempt to wind back time and technology and ensure that many, many, many more people die. As a reminder, according to one study, at least 3 million American lives have been saved as a result of the mRNA COVID vaccines. So thank you, science. We are sorry some people don't believe in you. That does it for us tonight.